Hi, Mary. Hi, Dan. How's it going? Good, thanks. Yeah, so question for you. What do you reckon is the biggest decision you've made in the last year? Biggest decision? So the listeners are probably sick of me banging on about it, but I moved house. I don't know if you realise that, uh, Dan. So <laughs> I guess moving house itself feels like quite a big decision, but we also moved location. So yeah, I'd say that was probably the biggest, the biggest thing. And how would you rank the outcome of that decision? Good, bad, indifferent? can't really say bad can you <laughs> no definitely good so far but I guess when you make such a big life decision like that it's, it's really hard to know so soon so so far so good probably too soon to tell but it is in the top five places to live in the southeast of the UK so there is that it is top five so we're, yeah we're, we're hoping it's good if it's too early to evaluate that decision what is the best decision you've made in the last year in terms of how good it actually was oh gosh that's really difficult isn't it partly because decisions you don't know if they're good till way after the time do you know possibly one of the best decisions I've been doing yoga in the last year which I hadn't really given myself time to do before I always thought if I'm doing exercise it's got to be really efficient and therefore quite intense exercise but I think yoga is quite good for me and I didn't make a big decision about it I just happened to start one day and I'm really enjoying it so no decision tree you didn't have a devil's advocate bit of constructive no, challenge then advocate. No, but it had a good outcome and it had a good outcome. Yeah. So I didn't even yeah. realize I was making a big decision at that point, but I think that was a good one. Okay, cool. All right. Well, what are we getting at here? You know, I think I've come to believe that investors really fundamentally are decision makers and that a huge product that investors have is their decisions for good or bad. And it's very tempting to evaluate them on outcome. But of course, more often than not, we ought to think about process. So today we are going to have a fascinating conversation about decision making. Absolutely. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So joining us for a conversation about decision making, we're delighted to welcome back Nikki Matthews, an investment researcher at LCP. Nikki, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Morning, Nikki. So I think when you joined us last time, which was, I think, almost a year ago, actually, Nikki, your role was a bit more of a, a dual role between client facing and, and also research. But in that last year, you've moved to a fully research focused role. So do you want to just give a, the listeners a bit of an update on, on what your focus is now? Sure. So yes, my focus is full-time research. I look at multi-asset funds predominantly and also alternative asset classes, particularly esoteric asset classes, for example, insurance linked securities, to see if they're a good fit for our clients. And the reason for moving to the full-time research role is that LCP is now needing that sort of resource as we're growing our client base significantly, particularly along the larger clients that need, I guess, specialized research. Fantastic. And Nikki, you've also got a special interest in sort of decision making and psychology. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. So I've been reading quite a lot of behavioral finance type books, but also pure psychology books over the last sort of five, six years or so. And I decided this year, getting quite bored in lockdown, that it would be a good idea to start a master's in psychology as well, just to sort of formalize that knowledge. Great. And how's that going? It's going well. It's very, very 
interesting and very different to anything I've done in the past. Part of it is making up your own experiments, so bringing out the creative side. <laughs> How interesting. Yeah, you know, as, as I've gone through my career, I've started to realize that psychology is one of those disciplines that's incredibly valuable all, all over the place once you start start thinking hard about stuff. But we'll get into all that in a second. Nikki, I think last time we spoke, you talked about one of your hobbies and passions outside work being singing. Love to hear an update on how that's gone. I know lots of groups and things have struggled, obviously, over the last year, been very tough for a lot of people. How's your singing been coming along? Yeah, it's been good. I've been taking lessons over Zoom, which hasn't been that that strange to be honest it's the experience has been okay it's just difficult to sometimes hear the intricacies when you're singing but something I have had the opportunity to do a bit more of is actually record so I've got some recording equipment over lockdown cool fantastic remind us what sort of genre we're talking here pop rock and soul predominantly I've been focusing on Alicia Keys songs oh wow which are quite intricate actually in terms of the the melodies so yeah fantastic Great. Well, Nikki, should we, should we get stuck in? So we're here to talk about how people make decisions effectively. And, and you put a really nice article in our latest edition of VISA, which we'll, we'll link to in the show notes. So do you want to just give a kind of an overview of the focus of that article? Sure. So the focus of the article is on decision making and how that's often influenced depending on sort of the circumstance that you're in, the sort of people involved in the decision. For example, if you could be easily slipping into a role. You might take, if you're a group of decision makers and there's a chair, you might take whatever the chair would like to do and and go with that and perhaps not challenge as much, particularly if there are experts in a certain area on, on a board or on a committee, you might feel that their decision sort of dominates and you might not appropriately question them enough. So that's the sort of first, I guess, key that you touch on. So what can you, I guess, how can you identify if you are slipping into a role and and what can you do about it? I think if you yourself are slipping into a role, I think we're always slipping into a role, to be honest. I think, you know, you behave quite differently amongst different people, amongst different friends in the office. I think when you think about it, you're really always playing some sort of role. So I think just being aware of that and being aware of how you might influence other people if you are in a decision-making board and just making sure that you're getting their opinion and and that you're asking for it is, is a way to combat that. Yeah, and you talk in the piece about some great ways that you can actually use roles positively in terms of important decision-making roles. But funnily enough, I see some of these often used badly in practice. So talk a little bit about maybe about devil's advocate and about how you think that can actually help. Right. So I think just going back to if you have experts on the board, it's it's good to challenge them. So a devil's advocate is pre-selected. So I think they have some time to prepare whatever topic you'll be discussing at the meeting. And they typically take a contrary view. So that's making sure that that brings challenge to the board and that it's discussed. And also that that person has time to prepare and they can give quite an informed view. Yeah, that I think is the key thing that's often missed actually, by the way, and a proper devil's advocate or red team, however you call it, is a very involved process where someone really gets to grips with the negative case for something. Whereas the way I often see it used, unfortunately, is almost as a casual afterthought, a bit of a throwaway comment, a bit of a like, oh, I know we should be doing some challenge here. So let me just play the devil's advocate for a second and toss a couple of comments out, which are often a little bit unhelpful and don't necessarily 
get you anywhere. Whereas I think the proper process of really doing that is quite different, much more involved. Yeah, I think it needs to be constructive challenge. The really interesting thing to me about what you've just been saying there is the idea that So I always thought about the idea of slipping into roles as being, well, that's a risk that I might slip into a role and I might be influenced, for example, by the chair in in the group. But actually, it's almost the other way around that you described it first, Nikki, is actually you should be conscious of the influence you're having on other people, which is a really interesting way around to to consider it. Because actually, I think there's, there's a lot of focus on I shouldn't fall into something myself, but actually less focus historically on what might I be doing to other people in the room. And I guess... For us as advisors, that's really relevant because we're sitting there as, as you said, Nikki, as the expert. And so actually it's really relevant to think about the influence we're having on the people in the room and making sure that they feel they can challenge us sufficiently. Yeah. And, and how many times you've been in a situation where the person that speaks first, you know, just frames the argument or puts the stake in the ground that anchors everyone else to that side of it. I've seen it so many times. I listened to a podcast actually at the weekend. It was talking about the way the US Supreme Court was working for a period of time or something. And whenever there was a big decision, they would always go in reverse order of tenure. So they would, I mean, most people on that have relatively advanced in their careers. Obviously, you don't get on that as a young person, but they would ask the person with the least experience first for their opinion, finishing with the judge who had the most experience for that exact reason. But often it's the other way around, isn't it? Like you have a big decision. Everyone looks either to the expert advisor often or to the chair for a steer, which might not be the right way around to do it. Mm. Absolutely. So should we move on to another sort of area that you focus in on in the article? So what was next that you looked at? I think it's related. So it's looking at how you're coming across. But I think going just a little bit further, I think just generally, whenever we meet a person, I think I'm very guilty of this. I start forming a story in my head of what I think about them. And I'm more conscious of it now than perhaps I was in the past. But I think I then even subconsciously, and this doesn't just apply to people, it also applies to making decisions, like look for information to prove that I'm right. And I think that's something people really need to be aware of, because I think that really helps. And then you just challenge yourself a lot more on that. And I think it's it's just important to move away from having to be right, because then you'll be a lot more open to, I guess, ideas. And I think also to making the right choices, because you're, I think you're, you'll get back on the right course if you've steered away from it a lot faster. Yeah, I mean, that confirmation bias is a really tricky old one, isn't it? Because it is just so difficult to know when you're falling into that trap, I think, in my experience, right? And I think what you're saying is the ability to retain a genuinely open mind between two possibilities is such a hard thing in practice because most of the time what happens is you make your mind up super quick and then you're just looking for reasons to back that up and prove that you're right sort of thing whereas trying to stay genuinely open is, is I don't think you see it very often in decision making to be honest mm, yeah and and I think when you talk about it in the context of meeting someone new there's that is something ridiculous like within a millisecond or three milliseconds or something you've made your first impression of someone yeah and it then takes a lot of time and effort to unwind that if you got that first impression wrong which I guess the first hurdle is realizing that you got it wrong which which can take time if you're not looking for that yeah, definitely. And I think it's it's interesting to also think that you might be in some mood that day or the person might be in a different mood that day. So it it could be just completely wrong because it wasn't the right time. But also, I think you also just know very limited information on a people, but also on decisions that you're making. Something might appear later that you didn't know about, and that can completely change your point of view. 
what you mean people's moods can influence how they interact and come across and make decisions so definitely well that's a really interesting and that's sort of it's almost like a vein that we've threw out your article really Nikki I think you come back to it a few times in terms of people's mood and how people are feeling and I guess clearly on the sort of positive side you can understand what could influence your mood and try and prevent it but then you've also got examples about things like is it prisoners more likely to make parole if the prison master's just had lunch was that the example you gave yeah exactly so prisoners basically received 65% positive decisions i.e. that they would get parole after the judge had just eaten a meal but that was basically zero by the time they were approaching their next meal so i think if you're hungry then you basically just want to get it over with and might not spend the right time making the decision. And it's interesting because I, I've always, in relation to what time slot do you get in a big, big long meeting where people are making lots of decisions? Do you go just before lunch when everyone's itching to get their food? But then just after lunch is also historically, in my view anyway, been not the best slot either because people might be a bit sort of sleepy after they've, they've had food. So there's definitely quite a lot of psychology in when you appear in a meeting slot, isn't there? Do you have any sort of thoughts, Nikki, on what the best approach is or, or things to look out for, I suppose, when putting a meeting together and, and the slots that might be less good for making good decisions? I'd say perhaps evening out the decisions throughout the day, so not making them all at the end could help. So if you have a presentation on one topic, then make the decision on that after that presentation I think therefore you're spreading them out and you're less likely to get that effect you might get it for one or two of them but definitely not for all of them yeah I mean that that is just not factored in as often as it should be right is it I mean it's it's sort of so many agendas are set assuming that we're just some sorts of we're all kind of robots that can just make equally good decisions at any point in the day and I guess we know we know it's not true don't we for ourselves but somehow we we choose to ignore that so often don't we yeah. And I suppose when we were talking to, I think it was in our chat with Clay recently, we were talking about the idea that potentially long full day meetings are a thing of the past with virtual meetings being possible, with people realising that you just can't focus for that amount of time. And I guess that hopefully helps to combat some of this issue with decision making, because if you've got one focused meeting with only one decision to make and you can put that whenever you want in the day, you can make sure that you're not subject so much to mood swings, although clearly everyone can have a bad day from time to time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it's, it's fascinating, actually, the point you make about influence and, and influencing each other. I guess that's part of the sort of conditioning piece, isn't it, Nikki? But I've just been reflecting on that so much recently because with, with a little baby in the house, you do realize how humans are just wired for that. So you see so many situations where if he's surprised by something, like if he gets some water splashed on his face in the bath, he's a bit surprised. He straight away looks at, at his mum or me for cues for how should I react. And if you smile and laugh, he's like, oh, okay, that must have been fine. Whereas if, if you sort of panic, then he's like, oh my God, this is awful and starts to cry sort of thing. And I think that's just so powerful because you can see how from the earliest age, we're looking to people around us for, for cues in terms of how we should react. And although we might think we shed that as adults, I just don't think we do. So we're in these decision groups and you're looking for other people for cues about what you should say and what you should do, right? Yeah, for sure. And I think kids can actually be great teachers in that sense as well. Yeah, just because they've got this completely stripped down, right? They're sort of really live demonstrations of the raw kind of human brain wiring without a lot of this sort of intentional stuff we put up around it on display. Yeah, and it really shows the power. I guess it's the most raw sense of a trusted relationship, isn't it? And actually, when we're in a trusted relationship, which feels quite different from a sort of father-son type relationship, we actually still have a lot of, I guess, power and therefore responsibility. 
Yeah. Should we talk a little bit about perspective? Because that's another point you made in the article, Nikki. What was one of the points, you, one of the little things you said, I think, was when you're a cyclist, those pedestrians can be awfully annoying. But when you're walking, you suddenly all these mad cyclists are all over the place and causing all sorts of havoc, right? And, and I, I just thought that was genius because I feel exactly the same so often, like when I'm running versus when I'm walking or when I'm driving. That's true, isn't it? That perspective is everything. Yes, I've always had this thought. I'm a bit impatient as a person. So when I drive, I always literally want everyone to get out of the way. And then when I'm in the opposite situation, when I'm trying to cross the road, I like, ah, could this traffic stop for me, please? So yeah, I've, I've noticed it in myself, how I just completely changed depending on the role I'm playing, going back to that a little bit. But I think perspective is is very much determined by sort of how you've grown up and, and the experiences that you've had and what you've been exposed to. So I think your background is pretty key there. And I think that is becoming more and more appreciated in recent years. I think there's been sort of ways of combating that amongst boards, looking to increase diversity. But I think focusing a lot on not just race and sex, but also sort of cognitive diversity and finding people that think differently brings a lot to a board. But obviously, experiences and background are actually a part of that. So looking for that diversity is quite important, I think. Yeah, I mean, we talked about that with last year, didn't we, Mary, probably a couple of months ago, we reviewed Matthew Sire's excellent book, Rebel Ideas, where he's making exactly that point, isn't he, throughout the whole book, that this point around perspective, you know, it's so hard to understand how narrow your own point of view is because it's so dependent on all all the sort of background things so this idea of widening out properly widening out those backgrounds getting real diversity into these groups is yeah i think you're right it's being it's being more talked about we're still at the very start of actually putting it into place and it happening though aren't we yeah i think that's right and i i guess it again just is it really brings home the the fact that you know, we're sitting there as the expert, but we won't have the same perspective as as other people making decisions. And not only do you need a diverse group, but you need them to feel empowered to challenge and to ask questions as well. I think it's it's just really hard to put yourself in someone else's shoes because you just don't know enough about them to do that. But I think just being conscious of it really helps. And I mean, perspective also just changed so much over the years. So what we think is normal today was definitely not 100 years ago. Yeah, I read this great quote a little while ago saying that something like your own experiences make up about 0.0000001% of what's happened in the world, but probably 80% of how you think the world works. And so just the absolute imbalance between the experiences you've had and the way that causes you to think about the world is so hard to appreciate as well. And those are the toughest psychological things, the ones that you can't even see, I guess. Absolutely. And I guess so that's kind of how you feel about the world. But there's also, and I guess this leads quite nicely into the next area that you, you touched on in your article, Nikki, information asymmetry. So there are things that I can't possibly know about you, Dan, and about you, Nikki, because I'm not you. And whilst there might be things I've I've learned, I can't learn all of your experiences and I, I therefore can't learn your perception perfectly. But sh- should we just talk a bit about sort of information asymmetries, Nikki, and, and what you've what you've said in the article about that? Yes, I think it's, you're exactly right. But I think even taking it a step further, there's things that, for example, I don't know about myself yet or might still be discovering. So it truly is impossible to to have information symmetry, I would say. And taking that to decision-making and, and investing in particular, you won't necessarily know a lot of the, the previous experiences the board members have had, which could bias them in one direction 
or another. So you might not necessarily know which areas you should be focusing on. So I think encouraging open dialogue and encouraging them to perhaps supply that information would be really beneficial. So for example, asking if they need more training on a certain topic, making sure that everyone understands the terminology that's being used and has a good understanding of the investment before making that decision rather than going straight to should we invest or not without perhaps fully understanding the consequences. Nikki, and in terms of really concrete takeaways that people can implement in their decision making, because I think one of the dangers in this area is you spend a lot of time sort of unpicking all the holes and all the all the foibles and the issues with the way we make decisions, and it can sometimes get stuck there and not be moved on to positive takeaways. But I want to leave the listeners with some, you know, four or five really concrete things. And one of them that you talked about in the article, which I think is really important, is this idea of prioritizing time according to how important decisions are. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yes, I think it's it's quite easy to spend a lot of time on perhaps decisions that might be really interesting, but at the end of the day, won't have a significant impact on your investments or your strategies. I think it's really important at the outset, just setting out, you know, how important will this decision be in a few years time? Will it actually make a material difference? And ranking your time according to that, and therefore you're, you're then spending the most time on the decisions that will move the dial. And you also, I guess I quite often see agendas where perhaps the agenda has a sort of colour coding system that says this discussion is quite important, this one's got a paper, this one doesn't type thing. But quite often the agenda itself is in the same order as, as it always is and you cover the same topics in the same order. Do you think we should really be moving away from that, Nikki, in terms of, so we've prioritised the amount of time that we're spending on the more important decisions, but should we also be putting those presumably up front? So that's the first thing we focus on when we're all fresh and we've had our food and, and our drink and that sort of thing, as, as we were talking about earlier. Yeah, I think that could help. I think also maybe mixing it up a bit, so not doing the same order every time to make sure that there's a bit of change in that. I think, yeah, that could definitely help. But as you said before, I think meetings will get shorter. So I think that will also really help decision makers. Yeah, and I think there's almost a comfort point there, isn't there? Often we can be very tempted to stay in our comfort zone. It can be very comfortable debating arbitrary detail or points of process or little kind of geeky points around the edges that are fun to sort of debate the ins and outs of. And I think we can get trapped into focusing on them too much and ignore the kind of big sort of nasty issue which is just so difficult to grapple with that you know people almost don't want to put it on the table sort of thing so that's one thing that's definitely going on there and then the, the other point around constructive challenge and devil's advocates and all that I think that's why it's so important to prioritize these things because you don't want to throw loads of constructive challenge at something that's really not that important because you will just create a lot of tension and probably waste a lot of time Whereas if you can be really clear about the important ones, then you can load all your constructive challenge on that and take the time over it. Let that kind of simmer a little bit and let all the different arguments kind of come through rather than feeling you're under pressure to kind of get consensus and get towards something. Yeah, I agree. Choosing the right battles. And that's really interesting. I know we've talked about it before and I can't remember which episode it was, but the idea that actually some of these decisions that you make you make the decision in a very good way by having lots of constructive challenge. They're the decisions that feel the least comfortable because there was that constructive challenge and people don't like challenge. So I guess it's just making sure that you're aware that the point is you're trying to do this in a constructive way and you're sort of giving yourself permission not to feel comfortable about it. Because I know that people struggle making decisions when they're not sure 
how they'll reflect back on it afterwards and that sort of thing. There are lots of things that feed into decisions being difficult. And if you then add a layer on top of that, which is I was battling with the person next to me, it just adds to that discomfort, doesn't it? Yes, exactly. I think think there's a big danger that what happens when you try and do a devil's advocate or constructive challenge is it takes away all confidence in the decision. And suddenly everyone's looking at each other going, oh my God, what you mean? There's like, there's a risk here. There's a sort of a downside. And if you don't do it right, it just pulls the rug away from underneath of what was a carefully constructed decision in the first place. And so that's why I think it is so important to do it well only when you need to. Interesting, that podcast I mentioned a second ago, I was listening to it at the weekend. It was a, a guy from the SoftBank Vision Fund who was talking, a huge venture capital fund. And he was saying that their process, whenever they were looking at a new deal they were doing, was that the lead partner who was advocating the deal had to speak last and make the reverse case as to why they shouldn't do the deal. And he was the last person to speak before all the partners made the decision. And you just kind of think, oh my goodness, that was sorry, that would just destroy the confidence. Whereas I guess if you do it right and people are ready for that, they can weigh it up in a kind of open way without it just destroying everything. So it's a bit back to if you're going to be the devil's advocate, give that person time enough to properly prepare that that position. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Nikki, other concrete takeaways? I know you had a really good one in there. What would be your next concrete takeaway? I think one we haven't discussed that much is keeping a decision journal. I think that keeps you honest. It makes sure that you can go back, you can see what decisions you made. You can also, I think it's important, it would be quite fun actually to have at that top of the decision journal, what mood you were in at the time, so you can identify any patterns in the decisions that you make. I think recording things like how important is this decision? Do I understand everything about it before I'm making it? And just, it doesn't need to be very long. It can be very brief, but I think it just gives you something to then reflect on and definitely learn from in future. Mm. And I guess one thing that, as you were saying that, I was thinking one thing I'd want to see in there is, is why, why did we make this decision? Because I think there's always this feeling we sit in rooms and we advise often groups of sort of, you know, pension scheme trustees, that's that sort of group. And it's very tempting to go back, you know, a year on and say, well, was that a good decision or not? And actually, you have so much more context now with the benefit of hindsight than you did at that point a year ago when you made that decision. And so I think sometimes building people's confidence in their own decision making ability, part of that challenge is, okay, well, a year ago, this is the decision we made and this is why and this is the information we had available to us at that point in time things have changed since then and inevitably there would have been a more perfect decision because there always will be with the benefit of hindsight but actually understanding that you made a good decision as a group based on what you knew then and then six months later you made another good decision as a group on different information because that's what what you had available I think is really important yeah, definitely. And you can also, I think, identify, you know, were there any gaps that you could fill in in future information wise? What could I change to make better decisions? I think it's an evolving body and I think there'll be more and more around it in, in future. And that won't necessarily mean that you make perfect decisions, but hopefully it will just be an improvement. Yeah, I mean, that information thing, I think is absolutely key. So I, th- I think it's fascinating to record what you thought was the most important information at the time you were making the decision, because inevitably you'll look back and almost laugh at how sort of naive you were or how uninformed you were, because of course, in the fullness of time, some other piece of information comes out, which just swamps everything. That in itself is interesting to observe over time in that you just, then you realize going into every decision that there's stuff here that we just don't know, we don't know sort of thing. And Maybe it's knowable, maybe it's not, but you know you have to make decisions in that in that sort of context. But 
Decision journaling is hard though, right? I mean, it, it is really hard. I think very few people do it because there's something, I think there's something in our psychology that almost resists, it wants to stop us from doing it. I don't know whether it's because it reveals how how biased we are or it reveals how random life is and how random the outcomes of decisions are, but there's something there that just gets in the way of doing it, don't you find? Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. But I think it gives you great feedback on yourself, which is good. Maybe that's why people don't like doing it. They don't want to get yeah, feedback exactly. on themselves. Yeah, yeah. God forbid we should actually get feedback on ourselves and see how flawed <laughs> we all are. Too funny. I guess the other thing that I guess is it's not a barrier to keeping a decision journal, but what counts as a decision? Because I think quite often, you know, the, the sort of decision where you're making a change and you sit in, around a boardroom and you discuss it and hopefully you have a devil's advocate and all these good things we talked about today, that very clearly is a decision. But doing nothing is also a decision. So sitting in a similar sort of meeting where no one's telling you to change anything, but you agree to not change anything, you probably wouldn't think to write that in a decision journal, but it is as active a decision as the big change was which I think, I guess it's, in a sense, minutes of meetings gives you a, a form of a journal, but it's not a very well-structured decision journal, is it? So it's, it's almost restructuring some of that good note-keeping to better reflect what we know about human bias. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think that's it, actually. Yeah, I think, I think that's it. Partly people might think, well, I don't need a journal because we've got the minutes. But I think the minutes, the minutes are an official record of things. And I think quite rightly, there's lots that you want in a decision journal which shouldn't go into minutes because it's just much, you know, your mood, for example, things you were uncertain about, things you didn't know. I think people people resist recapturing any element of uncertainty in an official record, sometimes rightly, sometimes wrongly, but you don't want people to look back and be like, well, hang on a second, what, you were unsure about that sort of thing. So the, the official record sort of has to be a bit clearer. But I, I think separately having your own, yeah, your own journal where you can acknowledge where there was a little bit of uncertainty is important. But yeah, you're right, Mary, aren't you? Like, what is a decision? Because if you look at things carefully, I think you can either conclude that we make like thousands of decisions a day or in another way of looking at it, we make hardly any and everything's just enacting stuff that's already been decided. So in these investment situations, being clear on what are the what are the decisions is is kind of important because otherwise, you know, you spend all your time writing decision journals for real minor things or else failing to recognize these huge decisions that have just gone by and you didn't even know. Yeah, absolutely. What else do we have in terms of the takeaways? So we've talked about we've talked about prioritizing decisions, time allocation. We talked about journals. We talked a little bit about devil's advocate. Give us one final sort of concrete takeaway that we, we should leave the listeners with, Nikki. I think something I found interesting a few years ago is a quote that perfect congruence is what I think is what I say is what I do. And I think that's something that is good to move towards because very often what people think is is not necessarily what they say and even more often it, it's not what they do as well yeah well that's fascinating there's a, there's a lot of psychology in that neat little quote isn't it it's quite complicated to unpack but and so you're saying presumably this is in the context of one's own behavior in a decision situation so you're you saying be more deliberate around trying to piece together that congruence in terms of what you're saying rather than jumping to a sort of instinctive reaction that might not have that congruence. Is that, am I getting that right? Yeah, I think so. I think it's it's making sure that you're reflecting all your thoughts in what you're saying and that then what you say is actually what you do. And related to decision-making, it would be that if you are for something, then that's the way that you would then vote. 
versus taking, for example, the group's view on something. Ah, okay. And so not necessarily being swayed, unless people have put together good arguments that change your yeah. mind. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Okay, fantastic. Or not being afraid to express an opinion. Yeah, no, that's a neat way of saying it. So Nick, you've, you've probably just given us the one thing that you want listeners to take away because that was such a neat little quote. But if we sort of take a step back, I guess, from the whole of today's discussion, what would you say is the one thing you'd like listeners to take away? I think it's assessing how they make decisions. It's considering a lot of the things that we discuss. So you can look at, is your decision-making body diverse? Are you seeing challenge when making decisions or are they unanimous? If they are unanimous, should you be challenging a little bit more? I think Dan mentioned this one. Are you ranking your decisions by how important they are? And are you prioritizing time accordingly? We mentioned this quite a lot, but do you use a devil's advocate to challenge? And do you record your decisions? And could you if you don't? Yeah, I think very few decision-making bodies that I know could answer yes to absolutely all of those, maybe one or two, but a really good list of questions for anyone to sort of run through quickly and try and try and check off, right? Nikki, what do you think is the most underappreciated part of all this? I know a lot of it's underappreciated, but what would you pick out as being perhaps the most underappreciated? I think it's very nascent still. Psychology is very nascent as a discipline, so I think decision-making is more so, I would say... I think we discussed this right at the start, your impact on other people, but perhaps how they're also influencing you as well. And I think that can vary under different circumstances. I think that that's not appreciated that much. Yeah. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, that's really interesting that the, actually the influence you have on others and, and that they have on you, again, will change with your mood and how you're feeling about yourself and all of those sorts of things, won't it? So, so it, not only is it an, an unknown, but it's an unknown that changes. Yeah, I think for people that are interested, Milgram's experiment is one to look up. It goes into that detail. Mm. Which is a really nice segue, I think, on two recommendations. So Nikki will will include a link so people can read about Milgram's experiment. But do you have any other recommendations for the listeners? I do. So one book I've read recently is Predictably Irrational. That's on behavioural finance by Dan Ariely. And then more sort of on the psychology side, Presence by Patsy Rodenberg is very interesting. She talks about sort of first, second and third circle energies. So I'll let the listeners read the book if they're interested in finding out more on that. Brilliant. Thank you. Excellent. Cool. Well, we'll have links to both of those in the show notes. Nikki, it's been a great conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Nikki. That's all we've got time for this week on Investment Uncut. Please join us again next week for another discussion. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.